Open source software is key to our software infrastructure. Closed source enterprises rely on open source software, but the development processes for closed source and open source software are often different in their approach to continuous integration and delivery. Oren Novotny is a chief architect of DevOps and modern software at Blue Metal Architects, where he works with a variety of clients to build products and internal applications. Oren spends considerable time developing open source software, both within his job as well as during his spare time. He's been in the software industry for more than 15 years, and he has a breadth of insights from different businesses in how they apply software. We started the conversation talking about electronic trading companies, which in some ways operate like large enterprises, and in other ways operate like startups. Oren described his time working in the financial industry through the 2008 crisis, which was a scary time, and then he switched industries to work at Microsoft before coming to Blue Metal Architects. Oren and I then discussed the process of setting up continuous integration for an open source project, including the difficulties and the large benefits for adding continuous integration to an open source project, as well as the differences between a open source project and a closed source project in how they should approach continuous integration. But there's clear value to both environments of integration. I hope you enjoy this episode with Oren. Oren Novotny, you are a chief architect for DevOps and modern software at Blue Metal. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start with your background in trading applications. You worked in trading applications from 2004 to 2011. What are the engineering requirements for trading applications? So it's going to vary by specific desk, but one of the things I've found is that there are generally complex data models, and you're dealing with huge amounts of data that needs to be updated in real time with extremely low latency. Also, they tend to have heavy UI visualization, and I was on the front-end teams for the most part at that point in my career. So it was all about creating visualizations and charts and, and order entry systems that could update and reflect the market data in the order data coming in in real time. This was a time when this is Windows Forms, uh, Windows Win32, and it's always, it's it was hard now, it was harder then in terms of just being able to paint those displays fast enough. What are those difficulties? What makes it hard? So you have data coming in off of different streams, you know, uh, market data, order data, it all has to come in. It has to get correlated, cross-joined, filtered, sorted, painted in a grid. And the typical threading issues in race conditions, deadlocks, live locks, all come into play. So it's a very challenging environment to start with. When I was just leaving school, I worked at a trading company for about five months back in 2013. And thinking back to those same problems that you just articulated, it's in some ways very similar to some of the challenges that companies are dealing with today in terms of streaming data. So today you have click streams of data or fast incoming data about sensors from a self-driving car, something like that. And you need to update your machine learning models or your visualization systems quickly in response to those large streams of data. And I find that reflective of this this trend that 
in some ways, trading technology is cutting edge and it's ahead of the curve and they deal with challenges that are ahead of the curve, ahead of the, the consumer software market. But there are other ways in which, you know, when I compare the trading technology companies that I saw when I was looking at this more closely, there's some way where they, they seem to lag behind the state of the art of of Silicon Valley companies or product-centric companies. Is that a fair assessment? Do you th- see that as a, as a strange attribute of trading companies? It is, and I would agree with your assessment. As a for instance, we were doing real-time pivot tables at one of the firms I worked for, and this was the kind of thing where you'd look at it and say, look, why don't we just do this in Excel? You have you know, master, you know, order data, parent data, child data, you could cross-join this thing with all the different columns and attributes to roll-ups at arbitrary levels with summaries and averages and all that. You could right-click it and turn that into a chart, a heat map. It was basically self-describing data coming in, that could, with, which could include all of the aggregates that you could do on it. And you had effectively a dumb grid I mean, I say dumb, but there's tons of smarts in there that could read the metadata coming in off of the data type and just provide all this functionality. And it had to do this with, you know, 10 or 20,000 rows of data all updating in real time. I remember one thing that stuck out at me when I was at a PDC in 2005 in Los Angeles. I showed some of this to some folks at, at the Birds of a Feather session from the Excel team, and their jaws dropped. So, I mean... The fact that we could do this in real time and, you know, I'm thinking to myself, like, why do we have to build this? Why can't we use a third-party component like Excel to, to visualize some of this? But there was a huge gap in what was, you know, commercially available versus what we had to do ourselves. Um, but to, to the other end, then, it's also a very restricted and locked-down environment. And that's ultimately why I, I left Wall Street, was you're using older technology, at least when I left, uh, it may have changed now, but they're doing cutting edge problems, but you're limited by what they can approve and install on the desktops because anything that they deploy would have effect on all of the applications on there. So they were naturally very cautious because you have huge sums of money flowing through these systems. You can't afford a mistake. So and many of these things were just very highly regulated, even pre-2008. There was just, you didn't need industry regulators coming in to say, we don't want to lose $100 million because of a typo. Was this all trading companies? Or was this just particular ones that had like a banking element, like a JP Morgan? So I would say the banks that I worked at tended to be more locked down. I did work at one firm that was developing a trading system using Microsoft technologies, actually on the back end as well as the front end. And that was unique. Most of the back ends in Wall Street were Linux, Java focused, where the desktop was Windows. Yeah. But for this that was firm... The, that was the architecture of the company I worked at, actually, that exact architecture. So th- this firm I was working at, it was owned by Citigroup, but, but it was operated as a subsidiary, developed a client and server entirely in .NET. And that we had a lot more freedom over because we were in our own building. We didn't have to dress, you know, in in Wall Street dress. We had cubes instead of a trading floor layout. It was definitely felt much more of a software company feel. 
What was it like being involved in that industry through the 2008 financial crisis? It was scary. That was for sure. I was at that firm I just mentioned, that one that was operating more like a software company. And we were just watching in silence, as it were, of like when when Lehman crashed and we're like, what's going to happen? You know, is that going to ripple? What's the domino? What's going to happen? Nobody knew. And there was a time when we were, nobody knew what was going to happen to our group either, because, you know, were we selling this product to other firms? Were we, was, you know, our parent company using it? And then we were just selling lucky. that product. You mean like like CDOs or? Well, in this case, this was the or, the order management system. Oh, okay. So it could do uh, the equities, order, futures, and FX were the three and options. The multi-asset, multi-broker, order flow system. But nobody was using it yet. So it was like, well, what's going to happen to it? And do we still have jobs? We were lucky. We did. We showed up every day for a while. And then at some point, it was a uh, work from home. We'll come in if we need anything. But we were, we were getting paid. And then one day they told us that we were being spun off and acquired by another trading software manufacturer. It, it could have been a lot worse, uh, and certainly it was for a lot of people. Yeah. So the financial technology world more broadly, how did it change in the fallout of that 2008 crisis? That's a tough one because I never really saw it from the regulation perspective. Certainly it became a lot harder to get a job. I mean, even as an engineer. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were fewer banks. Everyone was no one was spending money. The purse strings were all, you know, tightened up. I recall the that firm that acquired that the software firm switched from .NET to Java. They were thinking, oh, well, let's just take a bunch of C sharp developers and they're smart people. They understand the system and the business. We'll just make them do Java instead because that was how they'd written their trading platform. I tried it. I gave it a f- several months. It was not for me. And that's where I had left and gone on to another bank at that point. Yeah. When I was at that trading company, what was so cool about it was we were in one of these companies where you have the traders on the same floor as the developers. And it's sort of like the developers are building the product that the traders are using. And so you can have really easy communications and it makes for a really interesting environment. And it makes you, since you're the developer and you're on the same floor as the traders, you're subject to the same psychological gyrations that the uh, that the traders are going through. So on a day like, I think I was there during the Facebook IPO, and you know the Facebook IPO <laughs> like was botched technologically. Uh, not I'm not saying it was botched by the company I was working for. It was botched, you know, the IPO itself. There was some kind of issue with it. I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was Sounds another familiar. I, you you remember that? It rings a bell. I was not until you mentioned it, but yeah, yeah. And so that kind of thing, or there was another, I think there was another day where there was kind of like a mini flash crash. Oh, no, the, oh, the market got halted. There was some reason why the market got halted because of some glitch in NASDAQ or something. And, and it's just like crazy emotional gyrations. And of course, that happens in startups to some degree, but there's such a financial, directly financial at a trading company. It's just a very interesting world. I haven't done as much coverage over it as, as I have of like startups and, and enterprise companies, but it's completely unique. Oh, definitely. And for better or, as many will say, for worse, and I'm of the latter opinion, I I was never a huge fan of that trading floor layout. You know, I think that there is a, there's certainly benefits to being embedded and being close to your user. It was kind of 
Scrum and Agile at the early part of the Agile Manifesto and the Agile Movement, or even predating that to some degree. But And it's really valuable to have that constant input and feedback cycle with your end user. But at the same time, I think that there is a the developers in need a quiet space to get stuff done. And I agree with you know, that. Or at least some developers. Nobody's all nobody's the same. Some people can work in a cafe and put their headphones on. I'm not one of them, <laughs> you know. But I think that it's been everyone looked to Wall Street and said, Oh, we should all do that. We should all have trading floor layouts and it's cheaper. It's you get more people in there. I mean, Microsoft, among others, has been tearing down their offices and putting everyone in open floor plans. And good luck with that. I think it's insanity. Oh, I agree. And that's where it's one of those things where I'm waiting for the pendulum to to swing back the other direction. And you have all these the reports come out that says, you know, maybe the productivity gains weren't all we thought. And you know, but there's still a lot of inertia that open office. It's great. I mean, to some degree, it does work if you have enough phone booth space that people can escape into. But I remember like the chief architect, the, the person who wrote the most code basically would escape into silent office space and or not escape, but would go into private office space and be like, why do you think you want private office space? And why are we out here exposed to the vicissitudes of the traders? To some degree, I understood because we were kind of on call all the time because if something went wrong, then you know, that's like has, has serious ramification. You know, it's like direct financial ramifications. I mean, if you're building a, a product for project management and there's an issue with, pro- with, the, with your project management software and you're on call for that, and yeah, you've got to fix it quickly, but it, it's not as directly financial as, you know, as, oh, the trading software is broken and it's executing 10x the number of trades that, that we want it to. We need this fixed right now. So in, s- in some sense, like, I guess it makes sense that you're on the floor with them. But in many ways, like your software is going to be working just fine. And the traders are just going to be having a bad day because of, you know, vol is down or, you know, the something goes wrong in the markets and it has nothing to do with your software. And in the meantime, you're sitting there typing away on the other side of the room and the traders are, are just shouting and yelling and it's it's super distracting. And it doesn't even have to be that extreme. If you talk, if you think about somebody working in, share, I've worked in shared office space, I know contrasted with me working at home, I'm way more productive working at home because I can get into my like frame of mind. Nobody comes by to bother me. Like I work very well with my coworkers who are also located remotely and it's just I don't know. No, I agree completely. One I've been lucky since joining Blue Metal and it's been 6 years now actually. It was 2 days past my 6th anniversary. Never thought I'd be anywhere uh, that long. But by and large I've worked remotely from a home office where I have you know a powerful desktop, giant 4K, you know, 24-inch monitors and I have my setup. I can, you know, people leave me alone. It's quiet. And I just get my stuff done. And of course, that doesn't mean I don't see people. I go to the office and I go to meetings when necessary and when when it's important because face-to-face is important, but we try and schedule that. Or good part of what I do is talking to customers and clients and I will fly and meet them wherever they are because there's nothing better than that in-person meeting. But it's that balance. It's like, okay, at some point you just need to get stuff done. And having the the privacy and quietness, for me anyway, of a a home office has been hugely helpful. 
you made a kind of a career transition because you were in the trading world for about seven years and then you went to Microsoft. And I think, I'm not exactly sure, but I think at Microsoft you did some work that was kind of related, like you might have had clients or the people that you worked with or the products that you were working on were, were probably t- tangentially related to the trading applications that you were working on, but that still must have been somewhat of a career transition. What was that career transition like? Yeah, so it was always a dream opportunity for me to go work at Microsoft. It was one of these, I used Microsoft tools, .NET and Visual Studio and TFS for the most part, because I'm a lazy developer. I don't want to spend tons of time getting Eclipse up and running. I always looked at, well, I need to have a startup script to to launch this Java GUI or whatever. It seemed like lots of yak shaving. Whereas, and, and nothing's perfect by any means, but by and large, Microsoft's tools just worked, quote unquote, and I was able to get to do the parts that I needed to do and solve the real problems, not just spending time messing around with, with tools. So it was always a dream work for Microsoft. Unfortunately, Microsoft doesn't have a lot of product development outside of Redmond. And I am still and I have been tied to New York City. What I found was an opening in the technical sales team of the Visual Studio and TFS. So my role was a TSP in Visuals, new, the New York Metro EPG, Enterprise Customers, Dev Tool Sales, where my role was to try and help customers adopt Visual Studio Premium and Ultimate, as well as Team Foundation Server. And these are tools that I knew very, very well inside and out. And that was the transition, say, taking that experience and knowledge in the product and trying to see how I could help Microsoft's customers adopt it and solve their challenges using these tools. And from there, you went to Blue Metal Architects, where you are now. What do you do at Blue Metal? So been a an evolution. At Microsoft, I was in sales, and I learned a huge amount about the sales process. I also learned that not necessarily interested in directly being a salesperson. And that's why I looked for, I wanted to do more dev, more hands-on architecture, and was connected with Blue Metal, where at the time it was still a small company. I think I was the fourth or fifth person in the New York office at the time, where I started as a software or senior software engineer. So I was a consultant writing code for clients. At the time in 2012, it was Windows 8. There were still apps. There were apps for at least Microsoft was pushing it. So they were paying customers and partners to to do these things. A lot of mobile, we were early with Xamarin, and then some of the web technologies. Since then, I've grown to, you know, be more of that architect and chief architect role, where I oversee the strategic direction of how we go to market when in areas like DevOps, what do we consider modern software? What's our view on where the direction's going? Helping, you know, customers solve their challenges using technology. So looking to say, well, we're trying to, I I can give you an example. There's a manufacturing company that has some robots and they're trying to get some help with how do you automate the deployment of the, the, the firmware to the device? 
How does this connect securely to the cloud? How does the cloud scale? They spent tons and tons of time making this stuff work. And there's image recognition and cognitive services involved. They've made it work and they have a really awesome product. Now they need to take it to that next level. And that's where they've engaged Blue Metal and Insight to help do that. Now, on the side, you work with many open source projects, or maybe for all I know, that fits into your working life. How does open source contribution fit into your life? Open source is really a core to what I do. Whenever I work with customers and client projects, I always try to leverage tools that already exist. So instead of reinventing the wheel each time, trying to see, well, is there a tool or a library or starting point to go off of? And that's been really beneficial with open source because we can go in and not start from scratch. In the course of these engagements, aiming to give contribute back. So if there's some feature we needed of a, a date-time conversion framework, well, is this logic that goes as part of the core client deliverable? Or is this an open source library that we're using and that the changes go there and we're still de- we're delivering the value the application the business the important stuff to the client where the some of the underlying pieces that are not business specific and just have no proprietary value are just generally useful to the community and so we're trying to balance that wherever possible that was certainly a big part of it how long have you been contributing to open source I would say that the big it took off around 2012 for me, and that's really where I started getting back into development. It was where when I was at some of the banks, it was they certainly used uh, many libraries, but there wasn't much appetite to to contribute back at least at the time. It was also much earlier in the the .NET Microsoft ecosystem around open source, lots of commercial tool vendors, lots of commercial libraries. But this was before the NuGet package manager became a thing, which was, you know, I think it was around 2010, 2011. So over that time, since I'd left Wall Street and since I joined Blue Metal, the ecosystem evolved to have ways of distributing packages, which, you know, started leading towards being able to get them and consume them. You also had GitHub rising as a place to collaborate on these things. So it was a combination of things that really started taking off around 2012. How have you seen that world of open source contribution change over time? So I think there's been a dramatic shift to being open by default. And I think there's a separation between, you know, what's the core business value and how where are you uh, where's your expertise? What's the thing you're trying to do? What are you better at than anyone else? And what's all the plumbing and glue that you need to get there? All that plumbing and glue and, and other super important bits can be shared. And I think that there's become more of an understanding that there's value in doing that because you, you're building off of others and others will leverage that. So I think that that shift has definitely been occurring within the Microsoft ecosystem Early in 2012, or even before, I think if you looked at Microsoft and open source was kind of a joke. Now it's effectively the de facto standard. I mean, I think pretty much everything is built in the open unless, or by default, unless there's a compelling reason why it shouldn't be. How has that changed the the interaction between 
the consumers of the Microsoft stack and the people who are making that software stack in Redmond? I think it's brought everyone closer together. GitHub has been phenomenal for that, where you know, if you have a development team that's truly embracing collaborative development, you know, they're not just, it's not just code dumps that's there. It's not just, okay, here's the code in an MIT license or some other open source license, party on. But if you are truly engaged with the community as Microsoft teams are, and some teams more than others, again, it's a large company, but the .NET team, for example, has huge amounts, and, and I don't remember specific numbers, but uh, of community contributions, regularly interact with GitHub issues. Certain features that are core to the platform have been contributed by non-Microsoft people. And they're all vetted and work, they work with the community to vet, review, and ensure that the standards and quality are met. But the level of transparency has been, I can't say unparalleled, that's too you know, hyperbola, but you know, it, it's been amazing. You have, like the, the C-sharp team has language design meetings that they stream and post the, the notes to. Or at least you know they they, tr- they broadcast the language the the framework design meetings like in different groups even there have different levels but these are meetings that you can attend in live or sometimes just delayed but you can see the recording it's hard to imagine that ten years ago can you imagine Microsoft's development team recording and broadcasting their uh, their meeting deliberations no and I think it really makes. I mean, me as a industry uh, coverage person intrigued with this kind of the cultural change, and there's a like changing of the guard within the company. It's been around for 20 years or something, maybe longer than that, or no, 30, 25 years, something like that. I mean, so there's like just new people who are coming in who don't, so the institutional memory of that that time is changing, or or at least it's it's maintained in a way of like, okay, we understand the value of that institutional memory, but we also understand the costs of that institutional memory, and we can see the value of the more open model. Absolutely. I mean, it's changed. Although, there, to be fair, there have been there are many great people there that have been in there a long time, and there are certain people that are no longer there, and it, it's an ebb and flow, but I think there's been that push to get things more open that have been, you know, certainly pressure from the community, but lots of people that have been there and passionate about this for so long were able to get the buy-in and, you know, roll that up the chain. And, you know, Sachi has been amazing, don't get me wrong. But this process started long before he was head of the company. This was, you know, this was all in the works for a while, and it's been a gradual change. You have worked at enterprises, on-premises at the enterprises. You've also done plenty of consulting work where, well, I guess with, with Blue Metal, where you are working from home, which is remote, which is, I think, somewhere in between open source and working at an enterprise. Because it's, it's like working with an enterprise because you are working in this closed source environment or mostly closed source. I mean, most enterprises are, are not open source. Software companies, maybe that's changing, but most enterprises are, are not open source. But open source, like open source contribution is is a mostly 
remote. Well, actually, even that might be changing. I mean, there's a lot of people that work at companies that are just full-time open source maintainers. But the model of contributing code to an open source repo is by default something that somebody could do from a remote computer sitting in their in their office at home. So you really have the full picture of the advantages of working in an enterprise software environment from a contributor perspective versus the advantages of working on an open source project that, that you can work on remotely from home. And you see the, the costs of both of those those working environments. How does the process of contributing to an open source project compare to contributing to code within an enterprise? I think it's all, I mean, there's similarities and there's differences. Hopefully, you know, in an enterprise, you have people, and I'd like to make a distinction maybe, or even add one extra category of there's open source that are you know, small side projects or hobby projects, maybe a small team of a few people or one person that are done on the side and moonlighting day job or not as part of day job, but that sort of thing, labor of love versus enterprise open source where you have big companies that, you know, pay employees to write software that just happens to be open. Cause I think there's, that's where I see some of the bigger differences there. Like some of the things like project management and is there somebody to do some of the, I don't want to say grunt work, but just the stuff that needs to get done. Well, and if you're getting paid or somebody's getting paid, it will get done. Whereas if it's in a hobby open source project, people want to tend to focus in on the hard problems or the interesting problems or things that scratch an itch. Whereas so it can be harder to ensure that things like accessibility or localization or documentation are sufficiently covered because ask yourself if you're, you know, do you want to sit there? If you have a limited number of hours in the evening after work and, you know, before you have to, you know, after, after your kids go to bed or whatever, are you going to sit there and write documentation or are you going to try and noodle on that problem of why wasn't this thing working the way I thought it was or should? Whereas, Hey, look, if you, if you're doing this for your day job, well, Today I got to I got to spend this morning writing documentation. Yeah, right. What I got to do, right? Like, so that's where I see some of the differences. More about that aspect of it than necessarily remote or home or enterprise. More on the open source side of things. What are the problems with management of open source projects and and repos? I'd say that there can be finding people to contribute is always an ongoing thing. Trying to scale a project beyond that hobby into something that has, do you have people to review pull requests? Do you have people contributing? It's easy to people to file an issue, but if you're doing six other things, like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll get to it whenever I feel like it. Or, you know, do you have anybody stepping in that might be interested in, in fixing that? It can be a balance trying to ensure that users of your project are not blocked with bugs or issues at the same time again it's a labor of love like no one's paying for the most part for a lot of open source nobody's paying for this and that can lead to friction around unrealistic expectations or you know i filed an issue why hasn't this been fixed already and you're saying well you know 
nobody's paying for this, right? Like you want to support, you want to something fixed in a certain time or in a certain way, maybe there should be a model with a support contract or some other way where you have guarantees. I think there can be unrealistic expectations around support for projects that nobody's paying for. Well, the, the PR request challenge is something that I'm intimately familiar with because we have this open source project, this software daily. It's on GitHub, and we have we have mobile apps. We have a uh, we have a basically a, a podcast player that's specifically for software engineering daily. So f- we have some power listeners that really like to use that app. And the iOS app is open source. The Android app is open source. We've got an open source web version. We have an open source backend. And figuring out who is in charge of accepting the pull requests, of reviewing them, of doing the the testing, like running, making sure the tests have run and and there's no breaking changes. That's a single point of failure if you if you only have one person who is in charge of that and and then they're bottlenecked and if you have a bunch of contributors who are issuing pull requests you know you just have this this open source contributor who this or this open source pull request arbitrator who is in charge of that and that's that can be problematic if and then they, that can lead to burnout open source burnout and you know if, if you're feeling burned out you know it's not hard to discard your open source contribution as part of your life because it's like well i'm not getting paid for that so i'm just gonna like discard that and then it's like okay now my single point of failure has left and now the project just completely bottlenecks and it falls apart and you just see these kinds of systemic issues crop up in open source projects that have any amount of traction yeah and i would say for those projects there's also a lot of projects where having not enough pull request reviewers is a problem we wish we could have so I, you know, take it to that next level. And by example, I maintain several open source projects, some of which I fell into simply because the maintainer wanted to do something else. And I said, look, I can keep it alive, right? Or I'll get out a new release. I'll, I'll review the PR that comes in here and there, but I'm not doing huge active dev. And there's a number of those that I'll say, look, I'd love to have any active contributors come in and submit pull requests because then they do that, you know, I can, I'll review a bunch, but then I'd be happy to delegate some of that to some people that are to some new blood. Whereas, you know, and I've, what I've done is set up some of the CI, CD, the, the maintenance, like I can get out a new release without much friction, but how much time do I have to dedicate to individual libraries? Like, it's alive. Somebody comes in, we can look at it, but you need that next level of, you know, finding people to just have the interest to submit pull requests. And I'm sure that that's not a unique issue. So these are kind of like the level one issues of open source. These have all, these have been issues around open source for a long time. They certainly get talked about more these days. There's some great articles about the problems of open source burnout and whatnot, but there's also a suite of problems that exist for for projects that have significantly more traction. So like Kubernetes is not going anywhere. That project is not going anywhere. Node.js is not going anywhere. These are open source projects that have massive traction. They have tons of contributors with varying interests. And these kinds of projects, they start to look in some ways like 
enterprises. And we've done lots of shows on DevOps in enterprises and the release process in enterprises and the the maintenance of agility that that can come with with a DevOps mentality. Does the DevOps idea map effectively to open source projects? I think DevOps is key to open source projects, especially to help mitigate burnout and uh, you know and maintain agility. And, and it really comes down to that idea that you should be able to get a release out easily. You should be able to have high confidence in pull requests. You should be able to quickly triage them and ensure that, you know, you're not going to have breaking changes and do all these things. And in my opinion, the number one way to do that is to automate as much as you can, which is very much at the heart of many of the DevOps practices. And that's everything from validation builds in a pull request, uh, which are, then you have the question of what's build is build, fine, but are you checking things like code coverage? Do you, are you scanning the API surface area? There are some, I mean, there are tools to do this on .NET. I assume there are in others as well, but you'll compare the public surface area to say, well, did you add a new method? Or if you did, it gives you a place where you can review that and make sure it wasn't a breaking change. Is there sufficient test coverage? And what are the, you know, the tests pass or fail? So as much as you can automate on, on that side, and then similarly on the release management side, are you signing your code with Authenticode, which is really important on the Microsoft platform? Are you and are you doing that in a secure and automated way? Are you deploying to CI or nightly feeds of any kind? You know, what kind of channel mechanism might you be using? Are you promoting artifacts into beta or you know no one uses beta anymore, right? It's forever preview or uh, or finally eventually stable, but being able to orchestrate all these things in a way that doesn't require human intervention, I think is really important to preventing that burnout, preventing that single cause of failure. What's the process of setting up continuous delivery for an open source project? These days, I would say once upon a time, the reason many open source projects may not have started with it, you had to find a machine. Somebody had to build you know, a virtual machine as a build box. Someone had to install eight, some build tools, whether it was Jenkins, whether it was any number of different build agents that would be running there. And then it required lots of, you know, to maintain it for security patches. Nowadays, there's a number of hosted providers like CircleCI, AppVare, and uh, a recent addition to the open source community is Azure Pipelines. And these are offers that and services that will allow open source projects to build their projects often for free and take care of hosting the build agents uh, and recycling them for you. That becomes extremely important as, in fact, table stakes if you want to be able to build a pull request coming from a fork. So it's one thing to say, well, I trust my maintainers or if, it's, if I'm just building what's already committed, okay, fine. But if you consider that builds are executing code on a machine, and if you're going to build what's effectively an untrusted code from a pull request coming from the public, 
you cannot trust that machine to do anything afterwards. It, you have to assume compromise because they could have, they could run a crypto miner in a pull request. You know, I wouldn't put it past anyone. And you don't want that on your VM, and you certainly don't want that running on a machine behind your firewall in your network. So all that's perfect place for hosted services to run these in the public cloud, where they will, where each build agent, each build gets its own clean VM that's only good for the life of the build and gets recycled each time. And the Azure pipelines process or pro, you know, offer, product, whatever, allows you to do this for Linux, Mac, and Windows build agents. So it's the only hosted provider right now today that allows you to build to build on all of the platforms in a single YAML file and a single pipeline at the same time. So when a PR gets submitted to a open source project with continuous delivery or continuous integration, how does that compare to the PR submission process without continuous integration? So let's take it to the extreme, shall we? So some open source projects like the Linux kernel operate by submitting patches via email to some maintainer of some subsystem. Eventually, they may or may not look at it, in which case they submit changes. And effectively, you're submitting diffs and patches via email. You can't test or build this thing locally. You can't get feedback instantly or real time. You're at the whim of some subsystem maintainer looking at it, eventually deciding you know if they can build it or is it building with whatever changes that have landed since then. It's a very slow asynchronous process. Also, if you're, you know, from the maintainer standpoint, I can review the code out all I want for style, but will it actually compile? <laughs> Can't really know that until you try. And oftentimes, pull requests are just so big that despite best efforts of skimming code, you just got to build it and run the tests. Compare that to automated PR validation builds where all pull requests get built and the test suite are run and you can eliminate a huge source of issues before they even crop up. I mean, if it doesn't build or the tests fail, stop right there, fix your tests or fix the build. So it definitely takes that first layer away from having to review that. And you can focus on things like if they added a new feature, did they add sufficient test coverage, et cetera. I have only worked at companies where the continuous integration process, we only have to run it on Linux machines because we're deploying our application server to Linux machines, and that's all I, I, need, to, I, I need to test on because I've just been a back-end developer. But if you're talking about an open-source project like Node.js, for example, if I want to submit a PR to Node.js... I'm assuming that there's a CD pipeline that includes testing in a variety of environments. It probably tests on Windows and Apple and Linux and whatever, 55 different versions of Linux. Is that cross-compatibility, like testing layer, is that an important phase of the continuous integration pipeline? At least for open source projects, because open source projects are oftentimes these infrastructure things that need to run in all the different environments. I would say it's really important for sure. 
being able to test the code in as many different configurations as possible is really important. And having the broad variety of build agents and test agents being able to run that on a single PR is invaluable. One thing I saw, libgit2, which is maintained by Ed Thompson. <laughs> yes. He, he just submitted a PR. He was able to get Kimu, if I pronounce that right, right? Q-U-E-M-U, the Kimu emulator. He had that running ARM on a x86 Docker agent. So even though it was using the Linux build agent on Azure pipelines, but he was able to run and build and run his tests using an ARM configuration inside that container on Kimu, or I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I'm like, that was pretty cool. I think there was, he was only half joking when he said, there's like an S390 emulator in there. Are you doing it CI and CD and testing of your mainframe code? Because you can now. Like you can how what what extreme do you want to go to because some things that have become much more possible lately. What are the other types of tooling that contributors and open source projects need, or what other kinds of tooling are they using to get code as well automated? Or I don't know if you can automate the creation of documentation. Or what are the other suites of tools that exist? Because from what I've heard is like. GitHub's great, but GitHub has to do too much. Like GitHub has a very big job and there's not enough tooling just in GitHub because if they tried to put all of the right tooling in GitHub, it would just be like bloated and and you wouldn't be able to do anything with it or it would just the UI would be too crowded. So what are the other tool sets that successful open source projects use? I think documentation you mentioned is one of them and there's a few out there. DocFX is one that is based on GitHub Markdown to HTML. That's what the Microsoft Doc system is based on loosely. There are others, but certainly being able to take Markdown, which is certainly the, the flavor du jour these days of documentation, and render that somewhere is super important. But I'd say there's also products like you want to check for security vulnerabilities or open source license compliance. Many things like White Source will offer open source projects a free license. So granted, their goal is certainly to sell commercial licenses for the rest of the product. You know, that's where they make their money. But many of these tool sets will or have offers for open source projects to help with those things. As we begin to wrap up, I want to talk a little bit about the other projects you're involved. What are the open source projects and I guess non-open source projects that you are spending your time in? So there's a few ones that come top of mind. One is a, a code signing service that I maintain on behalf of the .NET Foundation and really is available for any organization to deploy into their Azure environment. It supports Authenticode code signing as well as NuGet package signing and v6 signing and click once signing. All of the popular signing formats where the certificate is stored in Azure Key Vault's hardware security module for safety and security. So that is a project that I've done because I found that as a gap in the tool chain. We offer that as a service to the .NET Foundation member projects, but certainly any organization can use the, the underlying software. Another one is Humanizer, which is you may have used in some places or another, but its idea is to take things like numbers and take the number a thousand and turn it to the word a thousand or a date 
or a time span and say it was 30 minutes ago or something like that. XUnit is a unit testing tool set that I help maintain the device runner for. So when you want to use unit tests on Xamarin for you know, iOS or Android or UWP, you can do that using some of the uh, device runners that I've, I've helped write. So those are a few that are top of mind. In general, though, I also try and help a large number of open source projects implement CI and CD and really help unblock them. So if it's they're having trouble building something, I'll try and make sure that they can build it and do it on an automated way. So I chip in in a lot of places. But what kinds of blockers do you see? Sometimes it's just, you know, people haven't done it, so they're not sure where to start. And other times you're trying to, the project tools have evolved so quickly and there are easier ways to do things now. So it's trying to get from the way things were happening to the new way, which once you're there is simpler, you still need to get there and unstick certain things. So trying to find where those bumps are and provide you know workarounds in repeatable ways so that people don't have to get stuck there. If there's somebody out there that's listening and they have an open source project and they're trying to get continuous delivery, continuous integration going, can they reach out to you for some help or some guidance? Oh, absolutely. I'd say Twitter is by and far the easiest way to get a hold of me. My handle is O-N-O-V-O-T-N-Y. Okay, cool. Well, Oren, it's been really great talking to you. We covered a lot of ground. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wow. Wow.